I was uh, sitting on the front row of the uh, Binghamtown Baptist Church in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. I'd left my parents' church when I was 16, and I went across town to that church because there were people my age in it. Uh, after I'd been there for a few years, um, I cycled from faith, away from faith, back to faith. I decided for a while that I didn't believe in God. And I uh, came back to faith, rededicated my life, and, and left behind uh, a path of some really unwise decisions. And so I was sitting there on the front because that's where I love to sit because I don't have the attention span that can sit in the back of the room because I discovered a long time ago, church people apparently only go to the restroom on Sundays uh, while they're at church. And so everybody's up and down, up and down, in and out, in and out. And so I just couldn't pay attention in the back. So I had to sit up in front. And so the choir had done their thing. And then the preacher got to the end of his sermon. And like every Sunday, we would have an invitation. There would be an altar call. And so he asked everybody to stand. And so we all stood and he opened up the front for anybody who wanted to come pray. And so while everybody was singing and some people were responding for different reasons, uh, out of the corner of my right eye, um, my attention was drawn to a couple of girls my age. And, and one in particular who had on this little khaki skirt and baby blue button up with three quarter uh, sleeves. And, and then they went down and the girl in the skirt, she just knelt and prayed right in front of me. Uh, and, and let me just say this, it was not a skirt designed with prayer in mind. <laughs> Certainly not altar prayer. And, and I was sitting there and, and I, you know, I'd rededicated my life and I'm trying to, to engage in the moment and sing the song and I just couldn't stop watching her pray. And, and I was like, Lord, help me. I've, I've never seen anybody pray like this before. This is, this is amazing. And um, so after uh, they prayed, uh, they stood up and she turned around and I saw her and I said, wow, I have got to meet her. And that was the beginning of mine and Allison's story. <laughs> a few years later, we're married and we're getting ready to move to Georgia and I get a call from uh, someone who attends a church in Laurel County by the name of Hawk Creek Missionary Baptist Church. It was a guy by the name of Bob Links and uh, during the 9.30, he was sitting right down here in front and he called and said, hey, we don't have a pastor. We have this little church in Laurel County. Would, would you like to come preach and, and think about, you know, being our pastor? And I said, well, I would love to come preach, but, but two things I want you to know up front that I know absolutely for sure. And the two things are, I'm not interested in pastoring and I'm not at all interested in returning to Kentucky. And that was the beginning of how I became a pastor here in Kentucky. <laughs> Every story has a beginning. Your story, my story, the story of your marriage, the story of your life, the story of your career. Every story has a beginning because it is the beginning of the story that prepares us for the rest of the story. It's the beginning of the story that, that creates the attention, that draws us in, that captures you know, our focus. Uh, even great pieces of literature, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that's how Charles Dickens started off his story about a tale of two cities. It was a bright, cold day in April and all the clocks struck 13. George Orwell, that's how he started 1982. Every story has a beginning. Every story has a beginning. And if it doesn't, it isn't a story. That's just the fact of the matter. Every story has a beginning or it isn't 
a story. Now, when it comes to the Bible, the beginning of the story is what we call the Old Testament. The beginning of the greatest story, the beginning of the story, because in this series, we're talking about how the story of the Bible helps us make sense of all the other stories in the Bible. The beginning of the story is what we call the Old Testament. And if you're a Christian or not a Christian, we all need to know this and all need to be reminded of this. The only reason as Christians that we care about the beginning of the story is because of what happened in the middle of the story. And in the middle of the story, we are introduced to a Jewish carpenter, a Jewish rabbi who claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. The temple and the empire put him to death. All of his followers who believed that he was the Messiah and believed that he was the Son of God was now convinced that he wasn't because he was dead. Roman soldiers certified his death. He was buried. But the best part of the story is that three days later, he was resurrected from the grave. And his first followers, along with hundreds of other people, were the first witnesses of it. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And then they began to tell everybody about what they had seen. And then some of them began to document it and began to write it down. And then many of them would go on to die, not for what they said they believed, but because of what they said they saw. And it reminds us that without Jesus, we wouldn't have the New Testament. And without Jesus, we wouldn't care about the Old Testament. When Jesus showed up on the pages of history, he showed up in the middle of the story. He showed up in the middle of a Jewish story. He showed up in the middle of a Jewish history that was 2,000 years old. He showed up in the middle of a Jewish religion whose laws, customs, and traditions were over 1,400 years old. Jesus showed up in the middle of a Jewish story, in a very Jewish context, in a Jewish culture. And Jesus was handed a Jewish scripture, and Jesus believed the Jewish scripture. Jesus read the Jewish scripture, and Jesus believed that the Jewish scriptures were inspired and true. If you read anything in the Gospels or anything in the New Testament, you know that a lot of Jesus' teaching, either directly or indirectly, referenced the Old Testament. So Jesus showed up in the middle of the story, and the only reason that we care about the beginning of the story is because of what happened in the middle of the story. So it shouldn't surprise us when we open up the New Testament, we find that when we open it up, we find lingering echoes of the Old Testament. When you open up the pages of the New Testament, when you open up the first page of the first book in the English New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector who became a follower of Jesus, eyewitness of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Matthew, he begins to write the part of the Bible that many of us growing up, we found it to be the most boring and we never read them. We just skipped them. It was a genealogy. That's how the New Testament begins. It begins with a genealogy of Jesus's descendants. Who are Jesus's descendants? Jewish people. And so Matthew opens up with this long list of he begat him and he begat him and he begat him and he begat him. There's a whole lot of begatting going on. Apparently nobody had a job, just begat, 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 begat. And it's like, what is the point of all of that? And when you really begin to know who he's talking about, you understand that Matthew's point is that Jesus came for messed up people, for messed up people, to save messed up people. When Mark begins his gospel, Mark begins by talking about the last of the Old Testament prophets, a guy by the name of John the Baptizer, whose ministry was predicted, wait for it, where? 
in the Old Testament. Luke begins his gospel talking about the parents of John the baptizer, a Jewish priest by the name of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and talking about the Jewish promise made by the Jewish prophets of a Savior who would be more born among the Jews. And then Luke begins to tell us about the birth of Jesus. In John, John writes, and he echoes the opening of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1. And so when you turn open the New Testament, you find echoes, strong echoes of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, just so that we all know this, so that we can start where we need to start today, the Old Testament is the history of God's covenantal relationship with one nation. That's what the Old Testament is. It is the story of God's covenantal relationship with one particular nation, the nation of Israel. And God had entered into a covenant with them, a specific covenant with them. And here's the thing, we aren't Jewish and it wasn't our covenant. It's not our story. It's the story of the Jewish people. And so here's something really important to know. This is an important thing to keep in mind. The Old Testament wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And this matters a great deal for you when you try to read the Old Testament and when I try to read the Old Testament or we try to make sense of the Old Testament. It wasn't written to us. It was written for us. So what are we supposed to do about that? And how are we supposed to read it? If the Old Testament is about God's covenant with Israel and it's not our covenant, then how shall we Gentiles, us non-Jewish people, read a book that's all about a covenant with a people that we are not the people? And so that's a great question because we are the New Testament. We are a new covenant of people. And so the New Testament anticipates the question of how do we read the Old Testament? And here's what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said about the Old Testament, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful. Everybody say useful. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says the Old Testament is useful. Even if it wasn't written to you, it was written for you to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. So the Old Testament, when read correctly, offers us principles and wisdom to help us live life better to avoid missteps, to avoid regrets. It exposes our wrong. It shows us a better way. It shows us God's way. He says in another place in Romans chapter 15, he says such things were written in the Old Testament in the scriptures long ago to teach us. That means there's something for us to learn. There's something we can learn from the Old Testament. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So. The New Testament says that the Old Testament is useful. It's profitable. It can teach you about how to live life God's way. It also offers us hope and encouragement. So the Old Testament offers us wisdom to make us better at life and it gives us hope and encouragement in our life. And so when you read the Old Testament, if you don't walk away with hope and encouragement, perhaps you aren't reading it right. So. When we open up the Old Testament and we go to the first book in the collection of books, we come to Genesis. It's the book of origin. It's the book of beginning. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you use your iPhone, your iPad, if not, the verses are going to be right here on the screen. But Genesis is the epic beginning to the epic story of the scriptures. And to understand a bit about Genesis before we read it, you need to remind yourself, and I need to remind myself, that Genesis is an ancient document written in an ancient language, 
written to a group of people who had an ancient understanding of the world around them. They lived within an ancient culture, but God, through Moses, because Moses was the author of the book of Genesis 34 to 3,500 years ago, even though it's written in an ancient language, in an ancient context, to an ancient people, God, through Moses, is communicating to them and to us timeless truth. Now, here's what an Old Testament scholar by the name of John Walton, this, this is what he said, and I think this is important before we read the text. He says, the Israelites were embedded in the ancient world, and they fought like ancient people. God communicated to them in that ancient world and used that which was familiar to them to communicate. Therefore, the theology revealed to them, true as it is, was clothed in ancient garb. So there's a warning for all of us. There's a warning for you. There's a warning for me that when we go to the Old Testament, we need to be very careful that we do not impose modern thinking upon an ancient text. That's what we love to do. We, we try to read in a modern way of thinking into an ancient text. When we open up the Old Testament consistently and continually, I wanna ask you, I wanna ask me, I wanna ask all of us to have the humility to be willing to question traditional interpretations without questioning traditional theology. That whenever we read the Old Testament, we should always be asking ourselves, is the interpretation true? Is the interpretation correct? And we do so without questioning traditional theology. Christians believe that the scripture is inspired, that it is the word of God from Genesis through Revelation, but we do not, we have never believed that our interpretations are inspired or infallible. So to know what Genesis means today, we have to first understand what Genesis meant then because it cannot mean today what it did not mean then. So the question is, who and why? Who and why? Who is Moses writing to and why? And the story of Genesis actually begins further down the story because we need to understand who's Moses talking to. And the story of Genesis for us to understand the context actually begins with a man by the name of Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to give you a son, though you don't have a son. And I'm going to make you the father of a son, the father then of a great family, and then the father one day of a great nation. Your descendants are going to become a great nation through which the whole world's going to be blessed. Years later, Abraham's descendants did grow in number, a large number. They ended up moving through a series of events to Egypt. They were in Egypt enslaved for 400 plus years. And we're not even going to find this part of the story to the latter part of Genesis. But then Moses shows up, a guy that we're not gonna be introduced to until the next book, the book of Exodus. Moses shows up, delivers these Hebrew, these Jewish people from slavery. They go across the Red Sea and they get on the other side and these slaves are now free and they have to learn how to organize themselves as a people. And Moses begins the hard work of reintroducing them to their faith, of reintroducing them to the faith of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has the hard work of recalibrating their worldview, which has been threatened for 400 years in a pagan culture in Egypt. And so with all of that in mind, this is how Moses begins to write. He says, in the beginning, God. Let's all just declare that out loud together. In the beginning, God. 
Now, lots of people have heard that all of their lives, that the book of Genesis was, was borrowed from other religions, that Moses took what the Sumerians had written and what the Babylonians had written and what the Egyptians had written and, and what the people throughout Mesopotamia had written, and he just borrowed and he picked and he chose from all of those, and he compiled this book that we call Genesis. But that could not be more untrue because from the very opening line of Genesis, Moses establishes that the story that he is about to tell is different from any other story that anybody else was trying to tell. Because in that part of the world, at that time in history, you would expect that this account would begin with, in the beginning, the gods. In the beginning, the gods, the pantheon of gods, the family of gods, the gods and the goddesses. That's how the stories began because in the early centuries during this time, everybody had an explanation for the world. Everybody had an explanation of creation. But here is Moses. He is telling a much different story. And he begins with the reality of one God. And he introduces to the Jewish people a framework of a monotheistic faith in comparison to a polytheistic faith of all the cultures and all the religions around them. Polytheistic being the worship of many gods, monotheism being the worship of one God. And this becomes the framework for the rest of the story. This becomes the foundation on which the rest of the story is built. And so Moses goes a little bit further and he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All other religions look to nature as their gods. All other nature, all, all other you know, religions during this particular time and all throughout history, they deified parts of nature and worshiped parts of nature as their gods. They would deify the stars and deify the moon and deify the sun and deify all these aspects of nature. But here's what Moses does in a way that was beyond its time. Moses says, I want you to not look at creation, but I want you to look beyond creation to the creator. I want you to understand that nature is not God. Creation is not God. That there is a creator who is supernatural, who is God. And this was so different from all the other major religions explanations. Some of my favorite, I could talk about this all day, but I'm not gonna bore you, but the Egyptians, the Egyptians had five different creation myths and, and they couldn't agree on you know, how they thought it all started. And you know, depending on where you lived at in Egypt and the time of history that you lived, uh, but, but the most popular one, it happens to be my favorite one, uh, one, of, one of the very popular ideas among the Egyptian religion of how the world started was that out of the primordial waters of none, all that's, that's all there was, was water. And this is interesting. None of the other creation stories of the ancient world attempt to explain the introduction of matter or time and space. At the beginning of their creation stories, there's always something already there. And in the Egyptian story, there's these primordial waters called none. And out of those waters comes the god Atom or Adam. And out of the waters, this god, he finds himself alone. And Adam, he, he gets bored. And so he decides, you know, as the story goes, to pleasure himself. And so he pleasures himself. And from his seed comes the gods of air and light. And then the gods start hooking up with each other. And then there's gods and more gods and gods and more gods. And then there's a whole pantheon of gods. And then they can't get along with each other. And so two of Atom's best friends, he thought they were gone forever. But then they show back up at the story. And then he's so overcome, he begins to cry. And from his tears come human beings. 
There's another story that says Ra and the party of eight gods, they created the Nile River and then in the Nile River they put a flower and inside that flower they put a beetle. And then one day that beetle crawled out of that flower and crawled onto the ground and it became a baby. And that baby was Ra, the sun god. And when he began to cry, his tears created human beings. The Babylonians said that Marduk, the great warrior god, faced off against the goddess Tiamat. And he took an arrow and he shot it into her mouth through the back of her throat. And then he split her body in half. And with one half of her body, he created heaven. And with one half of her body, he created earth. (laughs) Moses' story sounds nothing like the pagan religions of those days. To say that Moses borrowed from some people is to not know the facts. The Sumerians, one of my favorite, the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, they believed that one night the gods got drunk. And you know, when you get drunk, you don't do things as well as you normally do when you're not drunk. And so they all got drunk. And when they were drunk, they decided, let's just make humans. And they were like, sounds like a great idea. And so they made humans, but they didn't do a very good job of making humans because they were intoxicated. And so after they made them, they regretted making them because, you know, humans were just a bunch of scripts. And so they decided they're going to have to wipe them out and then replant them. And this is how people tried to explain the universe. Moses says, no, this is not the case. And in a radical departure from everything that everybody else was saying, he declares, there is one uncreated creator God. That's what he's trying to make a point about. Now let's all just, let's all just, write, let's all just say this and confess this out loud together. There is one uncreated creator God. That's the point that he's making from the very beginning in Genesis 1. There is a creator who is outside of creation. There is a creator who is outside of time, space, and matter. From Genesis 1, Moses, 3,400 years ago, he introduces us to the idea of the beginning of time, space, and matter. And I told you a couple of weeks ago why this is important. Because that means that the universe cannot account for its own existence. That nature cannot account for its own existence. It must be something outside of nature or supernatural that can account for the existence of nature. The laws of physics had a beginning, so the laws of physics cannot be the explanation for what is. Time, space, and matter had a beginning, so something outside of time, space, and matter must be the explanation. And and I told you this before, but I, I want to put this into your mind, and I hope that you're able to just grasp this and remember this, because this is so important for your faith. This, this is what we're introduced to. This is the framework from Genesis 1. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. That's a scientific fact. Not everything has a beginning and not everything has a cause, but everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning and therefore the universe had a cause. Moses is writing in an era of time that we call the Bronze Age. And he writes something that's so ahead of its time that it would take scientists to the 1960s to catch up to it. Einstein didn't want to believe that once upon a time there was a beginning to time, space, and matter. Other scientists didn't want to believe that once upon a time there was a beginning to time, space, and matter. In the 1960s, when people started talking about the Big Bang, some of y'all remember that, there was a whole bunch of Christians that got very upset when people started talking about the Big Bang because it threatened their traditional interpretation of Genesis 1. But there were some other people upset about the idea of the Big Bang. Atheists who were scientists were very upset about the idea of a Big Bang because perhaps better than the Christians, they understood the implications of what it means to say that there was a beginning to time, space, and matter. An editor of a science magazine, Sir John Maddox, back in those days, he wrote, we cannot go down this road believing there was a beginning. 
because it will give too much leverage to people who believe the Bible. Now, if you like to consider yourself a thoughtful person, a thinking person, maybe you thought once upon a time that to believe Genesis, you had to leave science outside of the discussion or outside the consideration. Somewhere along the way, you thought you either had to choose science or you had to choose faith, but you could not choose both because how you had been told the story, it just didn't seem to be able to reconcile itself. So when you read Genesis 1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, science gives us the scientific unpacking of that. John Lennox, in his book called Seven Days That Divide the World, he gives us this scientific explanation or description of Genesis 1. He says, and so from nothing, our universe began. In a single blinding pulse, a moment of glory, much too swift and expansive for any form of words, the singularity assumes heavily dimensions. Space beyond conception, that first lively second, a second that many cosmologists will devote their lifetimes to shaving into ever finer wafers. It produces gravity, and other forces that govern physics. In less than a minute, the universe is a million billion miles across and is growing fast. There's a lot of heat, 10 billion degrees of it, enough to begin the nuclear reactions that create the lighter elements, principally hydrogen and helium with a dash, about one atom in 100 million of lithium. In three minutes, 98% of all matter there is or ever will be has been produced. We have a universe. It is a place of the most wondrous and gratifying possibility. Beautiful as well. And it was all done in about the time that it takes to make a sandwich. It takes about a million years for the universe to cool down enough for electrons to attach themselves to the nuclei to form atoms. Imagine a region of higher density than the rest. The force of gravity will attract more matter into this more dense region. Over a period of millions of years, this high density blob will become stars and groups of stars will ultimately become galaxies. Even more extreme conditions are generated as some stars towards the end of their lives blow themselves apart in what is called a supernova. It is in these gigantic explosions that heavy elements such as platinum, gold, uranium, and other hosts are formed. This exploded material contains all 92 naturally occurring elements of the periodic table. It in turn mixes with hydrogen and helium gas from the interstellar medium to go again through the stellar evolutionary process. Second generation stars are born. We believe our star to be a second generation star. Around our sun, planets have formed, probably as gas and dust clouds surrounding the young sun gradually fuse together into a number of dense objects. Planet Earth was born 4.5 thousand million years ago with its rich composition of chemicals and conditions suitable for life. The good news is that when you read Genesis, you don't have to forsake science. You don't have to leave science behind, regardless of what you have been told. Something can't be true in nature and the opposite be true in scripture. We talked about God wrote two books. The law of nature, you know, the book of nature. That's why there's science. Christians, Christians were on the front end of science because as C.S. Lewis said, Christians expected there to be laws within nature because we believed in a lawgiver. So we went out and we started observing the universe to learn about our creator. But then we also believe that God has given us a revelation in the scripture. And those two revelations cannot be in conflict one with the other. 
Christians cannot afford to ignore science. And we cannot afford to ignore the scripture or less our credibility will be undermined with a world who is looking for something transcendent and something beyond this world. Once upon a time, Christians believed in a fixed earth. That means they believed that the earth didn't move, that the earth didn't revolve, and the earth didn't rotate around the sun. And let me tell you why Christians believed that. They had verses for it. They could quote out of 1 Samuel, they could quote out of the Psalms, they could quote out of Isaiah, and they could talk about how the earth is fixed upon its foundations and it shall not be moved. They could quote out of Joshua, where Joshua made the sun to stand still. They could quote out of Psalm 113, where the psalmist said, from the rising of the sun into the going down of the same. And they said, for generations, it's the sun that's moving. The earth is still, and we have scripture for it. But then comes along Copernicus and Galileo. And we decided through observation and through scientific evidence that the sun is the center and we are revolving around the sun. And then you know what Christians had to do? Christians had to revisit their interpretation of the text based on what had been revealed in nature. And you know what happened slowly? Christians changed their mind based on natural revelation. They decided they had it wrong with their interpretation. And here's what science does. Science helps us to re-examine interpretation in light of what is true in the world around us and what we think the text is saying about what is true. And don't forget this. Changing your mind about an interpretation is not compromise. You can change your mind about how you interpret a text without undermining the authority of the text. Christians believe that the text has authority because it is the word of God, it is inspired. Our interpretations are not infallible. They are not inspired. You and I can change our mind. It is not compromise to change our mind. It is humility to change our mind. Don't be one of those Christians who get caught up in the how and when. Did it take billions of years, millions of years, or was it seven days, seven literal 24-hour days? Don't get caught up in the how and the when because that's not the most important. The point is, this is Moses' point. It isn't when God created the world. It isn't how God created the world, but rather that God created the world. That's the point of Genesis. Don't get sucked into a secondary and third level debate about how the timing, how did it happen? What was the process? Did it happen all at once? Did it happen gradually? That's not the point that he's making. We'll stay open. We'll stay willing to look at the evidence and one day we may know how God did it. So until then, believe what you think the text may be saying as long as you have reason, good reason to believe that. But be willing to change your interpretation of the text as evidence comes in. Because otherwise, you'll just look like you're not thinking. Then there's six days of creation that comes after this whole thing. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And I don't want to mess you up. But most of your English Bibles do not have the Hebrew correctly written in it. Because in most of our English Bibles, it says, you know, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. It puts a definite article in front of each one of those. And unless you're using a New American Standard Bible, which is about as close to the original Hebrew as what we can possibly get, specifically the 1995 version. But in the New American Standard Bible, it gets it right because in the Hebrew, it says on a day and on a second day and on a third day and on a fourth day. And on a fifth day. And then when it gets to the sixth day, it uses the definite article, the sixth day. 
because there is a poetic structure to Genesis 1. In the first three days, God creates habitats. In days four, five, and six, God creates inhabitants for those habitats. And it's building into the story a climax, which is day six and day seven. Now, one other thing. When you read Genesis, just as it is, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, you see that there is a progressive growth in biological complexity. As the days progress, biology becomes more complex. It begins with plant life, then animal life, and then human life. There is a growth of human complexity within Genesis 1, which is exactly what science says. You can read about it. Maybe you remember it from school if you paid attention. Cambrian explosion. I didn't pay attention. I had to revisit it. Cambrian explosion, the fossil record. Millions of years ago, scientists say that out of nowhere, all of this biological complexity shows up in the fossil record. The fossil record and the Genesis account, when taken at face value in what it says, are not different. They are very much one in the same. And then we get to that day six. And after God creates animals, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Everybody say image. image. I'm gonna come back to that in just a moment. In our likeness, so that they may rule over, not worship, but rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now listen, don't have time to tell you all that I could tell you about this, but this is so ahead of its time. 3,400 years ago in the bronze era of history, Moses says, as human beings, we have been entrusted with the stewardship of our planet. That we have been given stewardship over animals and over all that the earth has to offer. We are managers of it because the earth is the Lord's. He created it and entrusted us to us. This is an idea that many people think is a political idea, but this is a theological idea dating back to Genesis 1 when he says we have a responsibility to care for the place where we were created to live. This is something we're still trying to wrestle to the ground to figure out what does that mean. And this is Moses writing 3,400 years ago. And then he goes on and he reiterates and he says, so God created mankind in his own image. He says it again, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. There's so much going on here. He introduces us to the idea of biological consequences as it relates to gender and gender not as a social construct. And this is as relative as what we can get. This is as relevant as what we can be in the 21st century of what people are talking about. He's talking about the biological differences between the gender of male and female. And here he puts male and female together. He breathes life into these first humans. And he says male and female in many ways are much alike. In many ways, they are very different. But in every way, they are equally important to one another. And this was incredible at this time in history. This is incredible now. The idea that men and women, there are many things that we share in common. There are many things that we are very different concerning. But the one thing that we share in common is our equal worth. Men are not more important than women. Women are not more important than men. Men and women are different in many ways, but equal in every way. And God makes anatom you know, anatomically you know, complementary pairs to further biology on the planet, male and female. Their anatomies complement each other. 
for the furthering of life, for the creation of life, and for the furthering of God's image. This is, this is an amazing piece of writing. And here in the very beginning, he establishes the worth of every single human being. Genesis says that from the dust of the earth, God breathed life, which is consistent with science because science says the same atoms and the same material and the same elements that make me is what compose the animals and what compose the dirt. But the thing that sets us apart from all the rest of creation, the thing that makes humanity the pinnacle of the creation story is that God placed his image on us. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. 40 trillion cells inside you. And in each side of those 40 trillion cells is a code. It's a message. We call it the human genetic code, DNA. And inside each of your 40 trillion cells is your identity. The thing that makes you uniquely you. The thing that makes you special. If you took out your DNA out of one cell and took the code out, it would be about six feet long. If you took all your 40 trillion cells and extracted the DNA, it would extend twice the diameter of the solar system. And God placed a code in you, which is an intelligent language that when biologists discovered it, it brought many of them to theism because this intelligent code within every single cell seemed to be beyond chance or unguided process. If you were on fall break, you go to the beach and you're walking along the beach and somewhere along the beach you come up to Trevor Loves Allison written in the sand. There's not a person among us who would have one concept of a thought that would imagine that the waves just came in and because of the current and because of the time of the day and because of the weather that the water washed upon the shore and as it went back out, that message appeared in the sand. There is a message inside every single cell placed by God that you are made in the image of God. That every single person has equal worth. That every single person is sacred. And from the very beginning, we have a framework which says we have no right to ever embrace racism. Because every person is made in the image of God. Black, white, brown, doesn't matter. I cannot be a racist. You cannot be a racist. If for no other reason we have Genesis 1 that says every person has been created in the image of God. I can't embrace nationalism which says I believe that I as an American am more important than somebody else who's not an American. Because American or non-American, we are all made in the image of God. I can't think because I'm a male that I am more important to God than a female because females just like me are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter. We are all made in the image of God and I don't have the right. You don't have the right to mistreat another person simply because they bear the image of God. Amen. Poor, rich. Republican, Democrat, gay, straight, it doesn't matter. Every person you will ever meet is made in the image of God. Every person that we meet should remind us about God. A few weeks ago, I told you about all the trillions of miles in the universe and how big and how vast the universe is and how when we walk outside and we see the heavens, they declare the glory of God. And 
And I hope that you walk outside and I hope that you are struck with some awe when you look up at the heavens and the cosmos. But imagine if we could begin to look at each other and sense the same awe. That we could look at each other and say, there is a person fearfully and wonderfully made in all their 40 trillion cells and their 3.5 billion characters of DNA. Here's a person who is made in the image of God. I have no right to infringe upon them. I have no right to stand in the way of their choices. I have no right to abuse them or offend them or to misuse them. I have no right because they're made in the image of God. And when I look at them, I am in awe of who they are because they remind me of God. Imagine if we could go through life and regardless of who they are and what they've done, regardless of who they remind us of or what they look like, regardless of that, we could look beyond and over and around all of that and see the image of God. Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He said to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the roots and the foundation and the framework of that go all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But at the end of that chapter, a man comes up to Jesus and asks him about paying taxes. He says, Jesus, do we have to pay taxes? And Jesus said, somebody give me a coin. Jesus received a coin and he held it up and he asked the man, whose image is on this coin? And the man said, Caesar. And Jesus said, so render to things that are Caesar to Caesar and give to God the things that are God. The man should have asked a follow-up question. The follow-up question should have been, what belongs to God? Perhaps to which Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? So what do we see in Genesis 1? Time, space, and matter had a beginning. What do we see in the creation week? Something that's completely in line with science. The earth is younger than the universe. Biological life is younger than the earth. And human life is younger than biological life. You don't have to check science at the door. Everything had a beginning, so there must be a beginner, an uncaused first cause. Genesis becomes the cemetery for lifeless myths and dead gods. And it gives us a framework to how we see not only ourselves, not only each other, but how we see God. It offers us the idea that God exists, that he is the God who is present. He is bigger than big. He is closer than close. He is powerful, he is personal. Miracles are possible. If God exists, miracles are possible. God can intervene and supervene any of the laws of nature to which he was the architect of. And Genesis reminds me that God is God and I am not. Genesis helps me answer and helps you answer the five biggest questions in life. It gives us the framework to begin to answer the five biggest questions in life. Where did I come from? Can you put those there? Where did I come from? Am I an accident or am I here on purpose? Who am I? The one who designs me, who designed me, gets to define me. Who am I? I am someone who is fearfully and wonderfully made. I bear the image of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, but only human beings, only you and only me, declare 
and hold the image of God. Why am I here? I was made on purpose for a purpose. How should I live? Under his authority. Apart from God's existence, there is no such thing as a moral law. Moral absolutes don't exist in a world absent of God. And where am I going? What is my destiny? And Genesis gives us a framework to begin to answer the questions that matter most. Because in Genesis, we're introduced to the God who created us. And it sets the stage of the story of the God who came to us to redeem us. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. God, you're bigger than we think you are. You're greater than what we think you are. You're nearer than what we think you are. God, help us to understand you are the God that creates. You created the heavens and the earth and you created all the sky and the sea and the earth and God, then you stocked them with birds and animals. And then at the pinnacle of your creation, God, you placed us as your image bearers. God, speak to us about how worth, how much worth we have. Intrinsic worth, inherent worth, not objective worth. That every person here has a purpose. That our lives matter. Speak to us, Lord.